Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters Dr. Lisa Interligi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests on sharing experiences, information, and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, to name a few. You can learn more, connect with the Loop Me In community, and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. Hi, Bianca and Kelsey. We're really excited to have you here today. It's um, a topic that... um, we're really interested in learning more about because it's something that uh, really didn't cross our paths until we um, got a little bit older and um, or more progressed with our kids. Um, But certainly um, it's something that um, we wish that we probably knew earlier in our journeys. So Ben, can we might just start with you and ask you, what is advocacy and how does it work? Yeah, um, great. Yeah, I'm happy to start. So um, advocacy is a process where Um, You speak up for yourself and others to ensure that your choices and rights are respected and so that you're treated fairly. So just to give you an idea, um, there's two different types of advocacy. So there's individual advocacy and that's when there's usually a third party involved called, called an advocate and they step in and they advocate or they fight for your rights to make sure that, um, you're treated fairly in the process um, or if you've had like a human rights violation that that's rectified. Um, so it's more individual advocacy, someone coming in, stepping into your shoes and um, making sure that you're fit, treated fairly. Then the second type of advocacy is self-advocacy. Um, self-advocacy is when there's no one else involved. It's just the person who's been treated unfairly and it could be someone else or a service provider and that person takes it on themselves to step up and advocate for their own rights to make sure that, you know, whatever's happened that, you know, may be wrong um, can be fixed. Um, so, yeah, that's it's basically um, advocating for your rights to make sure that you're treated fairly. Um, and, yeah, if, that basically sums it up. Yeah, and Kelsey, hi, it's Christine here. In your experience, what is the rights or entitlements that can be breached with young people with a disability, especially, I guess, when they don't have their own voice? Um, I think one of the biggest ones that um, we work with is discrimination. And I think that's more than what people, it's people think discrimination is kind of um, direct discrimination, but a lot of the time it's actually not allowing someone with a disability a reasonable accommodation to participate. So in order for young people to participate equally in society, in school, in their workplaces um, and with different services, there's often adjustments that need to be made so that they can participate. And a lot of the time services won't um, provide those reasonable adjustments, which is a form of discrimination, which I think a lot of people don't realise. Um, I think the main spaces we see that in is education and employment, mm. also in housing and the right to, for a young person with a disability to choose where they want to live and how they want to live and be given the supports that they need so that they can live independently and participate in the community like um, non-disabled people can. Um, I think another major one, particularly in mental health, is Um, the right to legal capacity. So um, oftentimes people with disability have their legal 
agency taken away from them um, and other people make decisions on their behalf, which is a complete violation of rights because everyone has the right to um, have a say in decisions that affect them and make choices about their life and have freedom of expression and communication and all that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, the the biggest thing is that um, disabled people often aren't given the freedom and the equality and um, the autonomy that non-disabled people are. Mm. It's so true. It's even in relationships too. I was watching um, something recently where the family didn't want their child, adult child, to get married and that whole um, going down the line of are they allowed to have children, are they not allowed to have children, it's a, it's a really difficult topic, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think like a non-disabled person is allowed to make mistakes and um, get in bad relationships and do all those things and no one questions it or tries to stop them. But as soon as it's a disabled person, it's the assumption that they can't make that decision or make mistakes as well. Mm. It's it's a bit like overprotection though, isn't it really? Um, I don't know, as a parent, you kind of, um, when you have somebody with a disability, um, particularly if you've, you know, um, they're your child, you've, grown up trying to protect them and then making that switch once they get to uh, an age where they have um, that that right um, as a as a um, adult um, is really hard to make that switch mm-hmm. mm. 100% it's Bianca speaking um, we see that a lot with parents and it's not quite often it doesn't come from like um, you know a bad a bad place it, it is that overprotection um and that you know wanting to be a good parent and keeping their you know their child safe but quite often what ends up happening is that they don't realize that that they they're actually breaching their own children's rights in doing that mm-hmm. um yeah so sometimes it's even about educating parents um or families yeah yeah, I think that's really important. And then, you know, switching to the Royal Commission because um, I think that that was um, kind of really shocking um, to anybody who has care for somebody with a disability. Um, the the outcomes of that or some of the evidence was really shocking. Where is that up to? Yes. So um, they've we've had 2,886 um, submissions received from the public, which is fantastic. Wow. Um, the submission, yeah, a really good response. Um, the submission has published 10 issue papers and in those issue papers they've highlighted what they think the main issues are um, where disabled people are being, you know, abused, exploited or neglected and they've asked the public um for evidence or like case scenarios, um, highlighting where they think there's gaps in that information. So we've had 605 responses to that, um, which is really, really amazing. A lot of hard work from like um, government agencies, not the non-for-profit sector, um, individual businesses providing those responses. We've had um, 482 private sessions. So where individuals have been, you know, victims of abuse. They've sat down with a commissioner and had those one-on-one sessions telling their stories, which has been amazing and quite empowering. Um, Because for a lot of people, sitting down and having those conversations is re-traumatising. So the fact that people are coming forward, raising their hands and saying, oh, hang on a second, I actually want to have that one-on-one session just to tell someone my story, how I felt, and to provide my own recommendations and how we 
we should change the system is really empowering. Um, recently, the Royal Commission has published an issue paper, which I think is um, quite interesting. And it's basically focusing on um, change in the sector in terms of um, promoting um, quality of services. So um, focusing on appropriate safeguards um, and more of a focus on prevention rather than response. Um, so ensuring better prevention and responses to abuse, neglect and exploitation. Um, but what's really interesting is that the report highlights the need to identify factors that put disabled people um, higher at risk um, and safeguards around that, but also educating service providers um, on how to promote and respect human rights. Because what's happening is um, a lot of service providers, you know, are quite often witnesses of human rights violations, but they're not educated. So they don't understand that the conduct that's occurred is actually wrong or illegal. And then it goes unnoticed or unreported, which is quite concerning. Um, but something that I've even noticed in my, you know, submissions that I've assisted people with is that, um, and in this report it also highlights, it, is that there's a need for a more skilled workforce working with disabled people. Um, because we've got a lot of people in the disability sector who aren't skilled or don't have the right educational background. Um, you know, a lot of submissions that I've taken, people don't, you know, a lot of workers don't understand, um, you know, how to work with someone with a disability, what reasonable adjustments should be provided. Um, and what's really sad is um, there's been a lot of complaints made where there's a lot of workers who don't have you know, a strong understanding of English. So they could be witnesses to um, abuse occurring, but they don't have, you know, the required understanding of English to appropriately document an incident report. So a lot of reports are going unreported or a lot of incidents are going unreported and abuse is happening because of that lack of skill. So I think that's, yeah, a really important um paper that they've published and yeah I'm hoping some um, good information comes from that in terms of responses. Yeah God, it's such a complex area though isn't it really um, that you've got um, you've got bystander um, effect where people um, don't think it's their role to speak up or think that somebody else will speak up or um, are scared to speak up in case they lose their job or, um, you know, you've got power differentials, you know, of people with disabilities who and maybe their carers who feel, um, you know, that they're not um, the most powerful in a powerful position in that relationship to be able to actually speak up. Then you've got language issues, you've got cultural issues. Wow, it's just it's just so complex. Yeah, I completely agree. And what's really concerning is um, it's more problematic in privately owned organisations mm. um, because, you know, at the end of the day, if you make a report that that um, individual who owns the organisation doesn't want to get sued and sometimes as sad as it sounds, it's a money-making operation. So, you know, they, they don't want to hear about those things and a lot of things go you know, put, get put under the, the carpet or people don't want to miss out on promotional opportunities so they don't report because they don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's absolutely really hard. I remember we had one situation with um, Louis where he was um, he was bitten on the face and at, at, when he started school and, and that was okay, but then the school was going to um, punish him and put him in the corner and... Um, 
and um and so I had to advocate on his behalf because he was basically wasn't speaking very much at all and um and it wasn't appropriate I didn't think that to actually punish him for um uh for telling people to go away because he was quite scared after he got bitten on the face um but what I found was there was um really a difficulty because the school had basically stacked the room and um, had like, you know, 15 people in the room uh, against me advocating on Louis' behalf. And um, I think in those circumstances, it's really hard to try and um, bring forward, you know, an issue that you might have where, A, you've, you know, you think that the child, um, you know, there's not a lot of places that the child can go because they have a disability. And then you've got all these therapists and specialists in the room who are um, basically, um, you know, stacking the the um, conversation against you, and I think that that happens quite a lot. That um, that parents or carers are in a position where they really just can't um, voice their opinion, and um, they're not heard effectively on behalf of the child. Um, and I think that's when an advocate is really is really useful. You know, particularly if you don't have English as a first language, or particularly if you don't feel like you have an understanding of the system or, um, but you just know something's not quite right. Yeah, especially yeah. also I think because some of the parents have some sort of disability that themselves, so oh, then they well. wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't be able to speak in a room and advocate for their child. So it's a really hard one, isn't it? Kelsey, how challenging is it and how important is it for people with a disability to speak up when something's not right? Yeah, I think it's extremely challenging. Um, like we've kind of discussed a little bit, it's terrifying for anyone to um, speak up when they feel like they aren't being treated fairly, especially when, like you said, Lisa, there's power differentials um, in schools, in workplaces, in whatever the space is. When there's that power dynamic, a young disabled person often doesn't feel confident or comfortable enough to speak up and say what they need or what they deserve. Um, it's it's scary, I think, but it, it's really important because like throughout time, the way disability has been framed, it's been framed as like an individual problem within that person and that we should feel sorry for that person and that person just has to live with the disability and the difference. But really like a disabled person is human, like everybody is, and they have the same rights as everybody else. And if we continue to, like, let these violations happen and let people get away with um, violating the rights of disabled young people, it just reinforces that cycle of, well, they're not going to speak up so they won't get a job, so they can't work, so they can't earn money, so they can't do anything. And it just creates this whole thing of, like, blame when if we can stand up for rights and we can say, no, I'm a human being, I deserve to be heard, I deserve to have access to a job um, and you can create an environment that is accessible and inclusive, then it will allow disabled people to survive and to thrive and to be part of the community like everybody else is. I think I think it's hard because there's so much bureaucracy and like we were talking about before, like it's so hard to understand what your rights are. If you don't have legal knowledge, you don't know a lot of the time what mm. um, the legislation says. So 
when someone's telling you that you can't do something, if you don't have that knowledge, you're just going to think, okay, I can't do it. Like, I think that's why it's hard because if you don't, if you don't know what to say, if you don't know where to go, it's really hard to stand up for yourself. Um, but that's why I think it's important so that people learn and that we can overcome some of these barriers that just reinforce that marginalization. If you are going to self-advocate, what are some tips that you've got um, for people? Um, Bianca speaking, I'll answer that. I think um, familiarising yourself with, like, policies and procedures, so, um, you know, whatever it is that you're advocating against, like, familiarise yourself with the rule process. So if you think that your rights are being breached, what rights are being breached? How were they breached? But I think it's so important and people often forget this, but start like collecting evidence. If something's happening at a school, collect your emails. You know, um, if you've had a meeting and you think that, you know, um, you haven't been treated during that meeting, after the meeting, go and write some notes. If If you don't have capacity to write, tell someone who can do it for you right, or record things, Um, keep a trail of what's going on. But I think even if you don't feel comfortable, like, seeking support from another agency or even an advocate, getting in touch with an advocacy organisation and being upfront, like, hey, I want to do this on my own, what do you think? Can you provide me with some resources, information? What do you have for me? Is this something common, right? Because I think quite often people don't understand, like, they think, because they're not like familiar with the process, I'm the only one going through this. And then that causes like a, like low self-esteem and in some cases even paranoia, like is it me as the parent who, you know, is it me? Am I overreacting? Or, you know, even the disabled person if they're on their own and they don't have the opportunity to have a parent supporting them, you know, um, maybe, maybe it's just me and I should be quiet. So I think getting in touch with organisations that can assure you that, no, you're not the only one, this is actually you know, a systemic issue, it's happening to other people, um, is quite comforting because it gives you sort of, um, I don't know, the self-esteem to keep going um, and a sense of community because you're not the only one and you know that, you know, there's other people that this is happening to. But I think, um, yeah, strengthening numbers, so connecting with people that can help you, Um, getting that education and the resources, doing even some Googling. Like there's so many great organisations that have developed amazing resources that if you feel, you know, embarrassed or not ready to connect, you can go and, you know, just do a quick Google, see what you have to find. There's like a lot of like fact sheets. Um, Like I know the um, DARU, the Disability Advocacy and Resource Unit, produces like all this great information, so stuff like that. But I think... um, yeah, speaking up, because if you don't call it out, it's going to happen to someone else. And you know what you have to think at the end of the day? Okay, it's happening to me now. Maybe I have the voice at the moment to do something, so I'll go and do it. And you're not going to be the only parent whose child goes through this. So I think helping people understand that, you know, the more that you're quiet, the less likely that change is going to happen. Um, so if you stand up for your rights now, in a way you're in, you may be empowering someone else because by you doing that, you could be influential in terms of like changing some sort of process that can stop the discrimination or the human rights violation from occurring. So, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for me is collecting your evidence, um, getting advice um, 
and connecting with the community that's going through the same thing. Um, there's heaps of like Facebook pages where people are ranting on about, you know, similar issues. You don't even have to comment, just have a read, you know, because um, at the end of the day, anyone can be an advocate. And I think um, you're doing more damage to yourself as a parent or as the person going through it if you don't speak up because it's not good for your your own self-esteem and your own mental health. Um, at, at the end of the day, we want to see, like, the world's not perfect, so you've got that opportunity to create that change. So I say, yeah, keep going. So that's um, really good advice. And I think that that's kind of where Chris and I landed on in developing Loop Me In is that there's power in the community of parents and carers um, that often, you know, you think that you're the only one and then you share it with somebody, another parent or another person with a disability and you share your experience and you find out that maybe they might be going through similar things. Um, And so that's the whole kind of premise of Mm. what we're trying to do is develop that um, community of people that can share experiences and feel like they're not isolated or alone in their journeys. 100%. Yeah, that's great advice. And, Bianca, who can be an advocate apart? Do you think a parent should be the advocate for the child with a disability or the adult with a disability? Yeah, I guess that's I think, a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, to answer the first part of your question, anyone can be an advocate. You don't mm-hmm. have to have any kind of qualification or educational background. What I would say is the most important thing that an advocate needs is courage, courage to stand up for someone else, right? Because at the end of the day, um, you you will be put in quite confronting situations because people don't like to be told that they're wrong or they've, you know, they've done something um, bad to another person. So courage to stand up for someone else. If you're the parent and you're advocating for the young person, I think one thing that you should really um, consider is um, are you able to separate yourself from being kind of that overprotective parent who may, you know, um, I don't know how to sort of explain it, but may um overextend themselves to breaching their their um child's rights not intentionally but just oh I want to be this protective parent but then sometimes what comes from that is that you know the child's or the young person's voice isn't being heard what do they actually want you know and there's sometimes there is you've got to have dignity of risk like like Kelsey said before um you know people have the right to make their their own choices and sometimes they're not the best choices but they're they're that they're their choices so I think if you've got the ability to separate that um, and listen to your, you know, your child's voice, then I would say you could, you know, be an advocate. Some parents are the, you know, the strongest advocates, but if you can't or you're worried or that sort of thing, like, you know, maybe um, what I want will overtake what, you know, my child or my or the young person wants, then I would say reach out and get an advocate because you don't want to be that person who's breaching, you know, your child's rights and adding to that. Um, but if you can separate that, there's some parents who are amazing advocates, you know, um, and then who go on and get jobs as advocates in the field because they've just got the experience. Um, but, yeah, if, you, if you're someone who wants to be, like, who wants to get into the field and upskill yourself and you don't have qualifications, a lot of, like, helpful qualifications would be, like, to have, like, and these are just from like advocates that I know. A lot of people have like legal background, psychology background, social science, human rights experience in like the disability field. But then you've got people who have no experience at all, um, but who are really strong advocates because they've got the lived experience. So they've grown up their whole lives fighting the system 
And because of that, they've got all this incredible knowledge and they use that to, like, advocate for other people and are really strong um, in what they're fighting for. So, yeah, I hope I've answered your question. Yeah, no, absolutely, because I think sometimes as a parent it is difficult um, to, to slow down and just listen to what the other people are saying. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard as well because you you know, you've raised that child and you've seen what they've they've gone through and that sort of thing. So I guess there's more of like an emotional connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, and stress, yeah, stress from the parent, like you just want the best. I just want my my child to grow up, you know, in a world where they're treated fairly um, and stuff like that. But I would say um, there's even advocates for parents, like Parents Victoria. Like if you feel like, oh, okay, um, maybe I need an advocate to help with this whole process. Reach out to organisations like them as well. Um, yeah. But I do think parents have a really um, important place in the advocacy process because, you know, a, a lot of times young people don't have or well, disabled young people don't have the ability to, you know, take notes or record things or maybe they don't have the knowledge to realise what's going on. So the only kind of witness there is the parent who's, you know, in the background writing notes or sending emails to the advocate. So if you feel like maybe, you know, it's not my place or sometimes it can be triggering, um, get an advocate on board and you could work alongside them, you know. Um, yeah, there's always a place. That's a really for good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, what are some of the um, examples? Can you give me examples of where people engage with an advocate? Yeah, um, I would say like what Kelsey said before, like disability discrimination is a big one. Um, Recently, since the lockdown, had a lot of cases where um, young people are being treated unfairly in the mental health system, um, not being provided with choice and control in that process. Um, A lot of NDIS um, and DSP complaints, right, Kelsey? Yeah. 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 Do you want to speak more about that, Kelsey? Do you have any ideas? Or? Um, I mean, it's so varied. Like there's so many different examples of um, reasons why people get an advocate. Sometimes it's not always that a human right has been violated yet, but it's that they know that maybe there's a meeting coming up or something where like decisions are being made and they want to have a say in it. Um and the, the space where that discussion is happening isn't accessible. So having an advocate to, um, I guess, build up those self-advocacy skills as well within that person and then, um, like, inform them of their rights and inform them of um, the different decisions that they can make and then they feel more comfortable going into the um, space and speaking about what they need. Um, yeah, I think a lot of education ones, particularly during lockdown as well, like I think education and, and disabled young people has always been an issue, but even more so now that um, we've got remote learning happening all the time. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many varied ones. I'm trying to trying to think. Kelsey, what, what would that look like um, with remote learning and education and um, somebody with a disability? Give me an, an example of what um, a breach would look like. Um, so I think particularly, so for example, if a young person with a disability normally has reasonable adjustments in place at school, so that might be that they have like a certain amount of one-on-one time with a teacher or they have 
um, visual cues which help them to communicate with um, their, their, their peers and the teacher. Um, a lot of those things now that we're into remote learning are just disappearing and teachers aren't always ensuring that those reasonable adjustments are upheld while a student is learning from home. Um, there's this, I think what I've noticed is there's an expectation that there's a bit of work sent out or the, the teacher is teaching and everyone is just expected to do it in their home and that's it. But disabled young people's disability doesn't go away just because they're not at school. Like they're still going to have additional needs. They're still going to require additional supports and it shouldn't be on the parents that are at home with them to homeschool them and teach them this stuff that isn't designed for them. I've, I've had young people that the teachers have said it's too much work to um, create adjustments on this piece of work for every young person, so just do what you can, which that that's a violation because it's, it's still an education and that young person needs to be able to participate and adjustments need to be made so they can participate. It shouldn't just be um, do what you can. It's, it's too much effort to make different pieces of work when we're all working from home. And what about with the NDIS? What have you seen with that? I think one of the biggest things with the NDIS is just not giving the supports that people require. It's so difficult to, I guess, prove how a support is going to be reasonable enough, reasonable enough and necessary enough um, for the NDIS to fund and for that funding to be related to the goal and that goal related to your disability. And there's so many different tech, um, tech boxes that you need to check off um, to be able to prove that you deserve something. And I think that's really hard because it's very deficit-based. Like the language when we do NDIS meetings and plan reviews, like you have to say, think about you on your worst day and you have to like really um, put that young person in a negative light. That's how it feels like you're putting them in a negative light because you have to point out what they struggle with so that they can get support, which like that's not a strengths-based way of working and it's, it's really hard for people, but that's the only way we can get support. Like the, the government only wants to give a finite amount of support to people and we need to be able to prove that you have something um, that's a barrier to you to be able to get that support. Yeah, yeah it's really hard. I think, you know, going through that um, initial application to get NDIS funding and then to do your annual planning, you always go out of those meetings feeling really low mm. as a parent and I'm sure as an individual because it is about trying to put forward the worst-case scenario and, um, you know, there's no, it's just a really negative experience. Mm. It's awful. Like the young person has to come in there and prove themselves, like how, prove that they need things to get support and have access. And I just don't think that should be the way because human rights say that we all deserve equal access. So why does a disabled person have to prove that they need extra to be able to participate when a non-disabled person doesn't have to prove that? Yeah, we actually had a guest a couple of weeks ago, Ali, who said that we asked her, what do you want to see in the future? And she said, I don't want to have to say what 
how my disability is, whether it's severe or whether I just have a disability and that's all I want to be able to say. Um, and she finds that quite challenging when she goes with her mum. I think that's a really common thing for a lot of people because um, in some spaces they're seen as too disabled and they can't participate and their disability is a barrier. But then at the same time, in other spaces, they're not disabled enough to get Mm. what they need. And it's, it's really like disheartening, I think, because you just don't, you feel excluded. Like there's nowhere that you fit in if if you're being told in one respect that you're not disabled enough and then somewhere else you're being told you're too disabled. Like, yeah, yeah it's just that constantly having to prove and tell your story over and over again. It's exhausting for people. Can you tell us a bit about um, your organisation? So it's the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. Is that right? Is that why DAS you call it? Yeah, yeah, that's the acronym. Um, so we provide an ad- individual advocacy service. That's the team that Kelsey and I are part of um, for young people aged between 12 and 25. Um, so what that looks like is um, a person will connect with our service with an advocacy issue. Um, we'll take them on, um, allocate them an advocate, and then the advocate will go through their goals with them um, and provide advice um, and, uh, and develop a plan on how they're going to achieve those advocacy goals or rectify the issues that they're experiencing. Um, And then the advocate will go and represent them um, in that process, but taking into account their willing preference and what they want. Um, During that process, though, our aim is to um, eventually educate the young person who comes through um, so then they have their own skills um, or they know where to go um, in the event that the advocacy service finishes at a point and it was to happen again. So we try and upskill them. So by the time they leave the service, they've got the skills and resources to stand on their own two feet if they can and um, advocate for themselves. But we also have um, a variety of other programs as well. So we've got um, a Young Leaders program. It's a free online leadership program. Um, Kelsey's also involved in it. She might be able to um, speak a bit more about it. But for disabled young people, um, educating them on how to be leaders in the space. We've got um, a map your Fu- the Map Your Future program, um, and that helps. Um, it's a program that's also online, and it helps young people set goals um, and connect them with the right supports to achieve those goals. And then we've also got the Together um, training program. So it's a training program that um, focuses on access and inclusion um, and upskilling the youth sector on how to make um a more accessible and inclusive um, place for disabled people. Um, Kelsey, did you want to add anything to that? Or No, I think you covered it really well. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of the work at YDAS that we do is um, with the young person, so all our work is youth-centred. So even if a worker or a parent contacts us asking for advocacy support for their child, where possible, we always try and speak to the young person as well to um, get an understanding of what they want. Um, Yeah, we do a lot of direct work with young people. We also have some really excellent people in our team that I think don't get enough credit that do a lot of systemic advocacy. So that's like policy work and um, taking some of these stories that we hear on a day-to-day basis and... um, putting them in reports and giving those reports to government bodies and um, high-level policy people (laughs) Um, and making sure that those stories are heard so that hopefully there is systemic change and 
these barriers are overcome and we don't need to have that those individual advocacy conversations all the time because the whole system's changed instead. But, um, yeah, I think there's lots of things we do at White House. White House is mostly um, all disabled people, staff, um, and, yeah, we work with disabled young people. Like that's just it's it's strength-based, it's empowering, It's um, we want to see more disabled people um, thrive in the community. So that's, yeah, our main kind of focus. That's fantastic. I um I only I have never heard of that before, but I think it's a great service, and I think um it would be great for more parents and carers, particularly, to understand human rights and um and particularly human rights of people with disabilities. So, um, as you said before, you could Google that. There's um I guess there's a human rights commission um that you can look at, and uh, there's lots of um places that you can find more information just to educate yourself. Yeah, or even give us a call. We're happy to have a chat. But, yeah, the Australian Human Rights Commission, if you wanted to know about, like, federal discrimination law, um, if you're looking for something more state-based, the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, um, if you're looking for, like, legal services, we would say probably Villamanta Disability Rights Legal Service or um, the Human Rights Law Centre does some fantastic work. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that's Even, fantastic. Um, it's great to have organisations like yourself for parents and for the young disabled people that have a voice and want to talk to someone. Yeah, definitely. It's really important, I think, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your your expertise with us today. We really appreciate it and we've learned a lot ourselves and, um, and we look forward to perhaps speaking to you again, maybe when the Royal Commission um, gets a bit further down the track and might be with having another chat to see how that pans out. Yeah, yeah sounds great. Amazing. Thanks for having us. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favorite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers, and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com.au. If you've got any feedback, please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636 or Lifeline on 13 111 4.